Thank you, Jack, and thank you, everyone who is listening to this and watching it. So there is some connection um, to Rotterdam's story in that this one, I'm afraid, is um, also about death and starts with a relative's death. Um, it starts, in fact, on the 16th of October 2017. Um, when a, a bomb placed under my mother's car seat was detonated by three men in Malta. So I knew the exact time that the bomb went off, 2.58 p.m. It was a Monday afternoon. And I knew the exact um, SMS that was used to trigger the bomb. So hash REL1 equals on. Um, so I know these details because for the past six years, um, my two older brothers and I have been campaigning for justice for my mother. So we've been in and out of court across three criminal proceedings, countless constitutional cases and the country's first public inquiry. Um, I know more details um, and I know them by now like the back of my hand also because i've spent the past three of those six years writing a book about my mother so the one jack mentioned it's called the death in malta but um it turned out to be about a lot more than my mother's assassination and um over the writing i realized it should be more than that and it's really a book about the fullness of her life and the three, three boys she brought up. Um, and it's, it's also about this tragic arc of her life that I realized over the writing maps in a really eerie way onto the arc of our country's history, um, which I see as quite tragic. And it's also about the campaign I mentioned um, that my brothers and I have been on ever since 2017 and how ultimately the goal of that campaign is to sort of bend that arc to a very different place. Um, so my mother was born in um, 1964, so just two weeks before Malta became independent from, from Britain. And for the first few years of her life in the 60s, it looked like the country would um, fulfill those promises it made itself around independence, that it would be free and affluent and successful, and in a word, independent. But then in the early 70s, as was the fashion um, around the world in newly formed states, the country turned inward. So it, it elected a very socialist government that began closing off the economy in order to grow domestic industry, began restricting foreign travel, um, and turning away from the West and towards the 
Soviet Union, China, Libya. And my mother's world, just as she was growing up in the 70s, began closing in. And um, she began feeling quite isolated um, and, and disaffected. So, you know, I remember my mother telling us, you don't know how lucky you are. You boys, when I grew up, there was only one brand of chocolate available, one type of toothpaste, um, one type of casual shoe, which would all have to dye different colors. Um, but the, the outside world or the, the West really became available to my mother through these foreign um, magazines my maternal grandparents used to subscribe to. And I say in the book, my maternal grandmother, who was still alive when I was writing it, told me, um, you know, we used to subscribe to everything, The Spectator, Newsweek and, and Punch. And I thought, you know, it's not really everything, but it, it brought to my mother this view of a really different way of living. Um, you know, all those kind of principles of capitalism, freedom, and those ideas seem to have taken root. And she also began thinking more broadly about writing, that she began asking why the writing in those publications was so different to what she read around her in Malta, which was much more conservative, always anonymous, and never very challenging. And over time, that love of reading gave way to one of writing, but um, not, not before she met my, my father, quite young, and had us three boys, again, quite young. So by, by the time she was 24, she had all of us. But then began, as you might imagine, feeling quite bored and, and fed up at home. So began writing part-time for a magazine. Um, and I always remember being with her as a boy uh, and my father worked as a lawyer and was out of the house quite a lot. And in fact, I remember them coming home, you know, in a, in a, in a row. And apparently my father had said something like the good thing about having had three boys in quick succession is that they brought themselves up. And of course, of course, it wasn't, it wasn't the case at all. We were always with my mother. Um, so she began writing for the newspapers um, really in the late 80s, but she got her column in 1990 on the Sunday Times of Malta. So she was the first woman to write a column and also the first columnist to write um, under their own byline. So everyone else in the country wrote anonymously even up to 1990, out of fear of violent reprisals or any other kind of reprisal, really. So very quickly, um, the journalism came home. Um, so in 93, 94, she was reporting on a, a drug trafficker whose father was the brigadier. And the suspicion was always that it was the brigadier who'd help his son um, bring drugs into the country. Anyway, that was 
her first big story, I suppose, and I we of course didn't know it at the time. I was about six or seven. But I remember at a point my mother bringing us home from school and we found one of our dogs um, lying dead across the doorstep in a pool of her own blood. So she was a border collie we called Messalina. And my mother telling us, don't worry about Messalina. She ate snail poison, which had happened with, with a Labrador we had. Um, it was only until much later, in fact, when I was about 16, that my father told me, no, someone slit her throat. And this was a few weeks after that, that our front door, our wooden front door went up in flames. And I remember it perfectly. And I also remember my mother telling us, um, don't worry about it. I just drop a lit candle against the front door. And again, I... You know, my brothers and I grew up seeing all these things because we were always with her, either driving around or at home. And in large part, because of the book, I had to revisit all of these memories. And, and we only developed an almost parallel childhood in the sense that the original memories are still there. But now there are, there's this other, other layer um, and I, you know, speaking to my father and my grandparents for the book, I realized just how much more of it there was that I, I don't even remember. So she used to take us to another, a more rural island. Sometimes in the middle of school, she'd just pull, out, pull us out of school, take us on the ferry, and we'd spend a week, you know, even in the middle of winter on what's a kind of summer resort island. And then I realized those trips, those what we thought were holidays, always coincided with a very difficult um, period of reporting for her. Um, and it was only again much later that I, you know, I, I look back on these little things, like the way she would approach her car in the morning before taking us to school and that she was already then in the 90s nervous about a bomb being put underneath it. Um, and then, of course, when I was older, like late teens, these things became directly obvious to me. Um, when I was about 17, so around the time I was doing my A-levels, there was another arson attack on the house, this time a lot worse. So stacks of used car tires, bottles filled up with petrol, put at the back of the house. And again, around the time she was reporting on quite a difficult subject, so Malta's first really far-right party, which had developed in response to asylum seekers uh, looking to land in Malta. Um, so this was around 2006, and Malta had just joined the EU two years earlier, so it became very attractive. To, to people looking to claim asylum. Um, and, and so this is what I mean or meant earlier about the tragic arc. So joining the EU was always very important to my mother and to us. So my mother campaigned a lot for it because she saw it as the, the answer to Malta's problems, you know, this silver bullet and that would 
so all these issues of governance of human rights um that would bring Malta closer to that world she used to read about as a girl in foreign magazines but in the end or in retrospect rather something else happened in that Malta did globalize and did become a lot richer but remained with the same rickety institutions that we had really since 64. So when we decolonized, there was some constitutional reform, but not the kind that we would need to deal with huge inflows of money, really serious problems of corruption, um, and a very powerful executive. And for my mother, that meant that she went from reporting on very Maltese corruption, so the drug trafficker, what he was doing, um, other people trying to bribe Maltese police officers, Maltese judges. So she went from that um, to reporting on um, kickback schemes running into the billions of euros or dollars, you know, flows coming from post-Soviet states, from the Gulf. And it happened weirdly imperceptibly because the changes in Malta have, have been so fast. And this was in fact one of those stories that um, she was working on at the time of her death. So in 2016, through the Panama Papers League, found that two very senior Maltese politicians, so the Minister uh, for Energy and the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, had set up two companies in Panama uh, just a few days after they were elected to government in 2013. So she had these two companies through the league. Um, a few months later, she heard about another um, offshore company company, one called 17 Black, but it didn't feature in the link, in the leak, um, and was in fact registered in the United Arab Emirates. And because it wasn't in the leak, she never had access to documentation on that company's owner. And so for the last few months of her life, she worked very hard across a number of stories, but especially this, trying to find out who owned 17 Black, um, but of course she never did. So she was murdered um, again in October, 2017. Um, and quite soon after, in fact, immediately after that, because the government's response to her murder was so aggressive, my brothers and I were thrown into campaign mode. And one of the things we did was share a lot of her material with um, a group of journalists who went on to call themselves the Daphne Project. Um, so journalists across the Guardian, New York Times, Reuters. And what they found almost a year, exactly a year after that, is that the owner of that company, 17 Black, is a man who now stands um, charged with commissioning her murder. So the three men I mentioned at the start who detonated the bomb pleaded guilty um at different points but they've all pleaded guilty by now a middleman um received a pardon in exchange for evidence on the murder and another three men um are awaiting trial 
for supplying the bomb. So that's eight men, eight men to kill my mother. Um, but anyway, so the I said at the start also that the book was about more than her murder. And it was held up for a long time, for months, in fact, because it, it took me a long time to appreciate. I had to report on my mother like I'd report on anyone else, as though I, I were writing a, you know, a magazine profile or something. And I, I had to speak to her, you know, her old school friends, my grandparents, my father, of course. But then someone put me in touch with her, her first love, which was you know, an incredibly moving conversation. And then, um, you know, so moving in a, a very early draft, I gave it a, a lot of space, a lot more than it needed anyway. And I, I share that draft only with, with my father and my, my two brothers. And so my middle brother, Andrew, told me, you know, it's good, but I'm going to email you a few suggested scenes. And, you know, the next day I got an email with 10 suggested scenes each one starring him matthew wouldn't read a draft for another two years and my father told me i liked it paul but do we really need so much on on the first boyfriend and i i thought at that point the book started changing for me and again became a lot more about about her and as i said the fullness of her life